Section 2, Chapter 22 of the History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.T. Macduff. The History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. The distress of the common people was severe and was aggravated by the follies of magistrates and by the arts of malcontents. A squire, who was one of the quorum, would sometimes think it's his duty to administer to his neighbors at this trying conjecture what seemed to him to be equity, and as no two of these rural praetors had exactly the same notion of what was equitable, their edicts added confusion to confusion. In one parish people were an outrageous violation of the law, threatened with the stocks if they refused to take clipped shillings by tail. In the next parish it was dangerous to pay such shillings except by weight. The enemies of the government at the same time labored indefatigably in their vocation. They harangued in every place of public resort, from the chocolate house in St. James Street to the sanded kitchen of the alehouse on the village green. In verse and prose they incited the suffering multitude to rise up in arms. Of the tracts which they published at this time, the most remarkable was written by a deprived priest named Grascombe, of whose ferocity and scurrility the most respectable nonjurors had long been ashamed. He now did his best to persuade the rabble to tear in pieces those members of Parliament who had voted for the restoration of the currency. It would be too much to say that the malignant industry of this man, and of men like him, produced no effect on a population which was doubtless severely tried. There were riots in several parts of the country, but riots which were suppressed with little difficulty, and as far as can be discovered without the shedding of a drop of blood. In one place a crowd of poor ignorant creatures, excited by some knavish agitator, besieged the house of a Whig member of Parliament, and clamorously insisted on having their short money changed. The gentlemen consented, and desired to know how much they had brought. After some delay they were able to produce a single clipped half-crown. Such tumults as this were at a distance exaggerated into rebellions and massacres. At Paris it was gravely asserted in print that in an English town which was not named, a soldier and a butcher had quarreled about a piece of money, that the soldier had killed the butcher, that the butcher's man had snatched up a cleaver and killed the soldier, that a great fight had followed, and that fifty dead bodies had been left on the ground. The truth was that the behavior of the great body of the people was beyond all praise. The judges, when in September they returned from their circuits, reported that the temper of the nation was excellent. There was a patience, a reasonableness, a good nature, a good faith, which nobody had anticipated. Everybody felt that nothing but mutual help and mutual forbearance could prevent the dissolution of society. A hard creditor, who sternly demanded payment to the day in milled money, was pointed at in the streets and was beset by his own creditors with demands which soon brought him to reason. Much uneasiness had been felt about the troops. It was scarcely possible to pay them regularly. If they were not paid regularly, it might well be apprehended that they would supply their wants by rapine, and such rapine it was certain that the nation, altogether unaccustomed to military exaction and oppression, would not tamely endure. But strange to say, there was, through this trying year, a better understanding than had ever been known between the soldiers and the rest of the community. The gentry, the farmers, the shopkeepers supplied the redcoats with necessaries in a manner so friendly and liberal 
that there was no brawling and no marauding. Severely as these difficulties have been felt, Lemitage writes, they have produced one happy effect. They have shown how good the spirit of the country is. No person, however favorable his opinion of the English may have been, could have expected that a time of such suffering would have been a time of such tranquility. Men who love to trace in the strangely complicated maze of human affairs the marks of more than human wisdom were of the opinion that, but for the interference of a gracious providence, the plan so elaborately devised by great statesmen and great philosophers would have failed, completely and ignominiously. Often since the Revolution the English had been sullen and querulous, unreasonably jealous of the Dutch, and disposed to put the worst construction on every act of the king. Had the 4th of May found our ancestors in such a mood, it can scarcely be doubted that sharp distress, irritating minds already irritable, would have caused an outbreak which must have shaken and might have subverted the throne of William. Happily, at the moment at which the loyalty of the nation was put to the most severe test, the king was more popular than he had ever been since the day on which the crown was tendered to him in the banqueting house. The plot which had been laid against his life had excited general disgust and horror. His reserved manners, his foreign attachments, were forgotten. He had become an object of personal interest and of personal affection to the people. They were everywhere coming in crowds to sign the instrument which bound them to defend and to avenge him. They were everywhere carrying about in their hats the badges of their loyalty to him. They could hardly be restrained from inflicting summary punishment on the few who still dared openly to question his title. Jacobite was now a synonym for cutthroat. Noted Jacobite laymen had just planned a foul murder. Noted Jacobite priests had, in the face of the day, and in the administration of a solemn ordinance of religion, indicated their approbation of that murder. Many honest and pious men, who thought that their allegiance was still due to James, had indignantly relinquished all connection with zealots who seemed to think that a righteous end justified the most unrighteous means. Such was the state of public feeling during the summer and autumn of 1696. And therefore it was that hardships, which in any of the seven preceding years would certainly have produced a rebellion and might perhaps have produced a counter-revolution, did not produce a single tumult too seriously to be suppressed by the constable's staff. Nevertheless, the effect of the commercial and financial crisis in England was felt through all the fleets and armies of the coalition. The great source of subsidies was dry. No important military operation could anywhere be attempted. Meanwhile, overtures tending to peace had been made, and a negotiation had been opened. Callier, one of the ablest of the many able envoys in the service of France, had been sent to the Netherlands, and had held many conferences with Dijkveld. Those conferences might, perhaps, have come to a speedy and satisfactory close, had not France at this time won a great diplomatic victory in another quarter. Louis had, during seven years, been scheming and laboring in vain to break the great array of potentates whom the dread of his might and of his ambition had brought together and kept together. But during seven years all his arts had been baffled by the skill of William, and when the Eighth Campaign opened, the Confederacy had not weakened by a single desertion. Soon, however, it began to be suspected that the Duke of Savoy was secretly treating with the enemy. He solemnly assured Galway, who represented England at the court of Turin, that there was not the slightest ground for such suspicions, and sent to William letters filled with professions of zeal for the common cause and with earnest entreaties for more money. This dissimulation continued, 
till a French army, commanded by Catinat, appeared in Piedmont. Then the duke threw off his disguise, concluded peace with France, joined his troops to those of Catinat, marched into the Milanese, and informed the allies whom he had just abandoned, unless they wished to have him for an enemy, they must declare Italy neutral ground. The courts of Vienna and Madrid, in great dismay, submitted to the terms which he dictated. William expostulated and protested in vain. His influence was no longer what it had been. The general opinion of Europe was that the riches and the credit of England were completely exhausted, and both her confederates and her enemies imagined that they might safely treat her with indignity. Spain, true to her inevitable maxim that everything ought to be done for her and nothing by her, had the effrontery to reproach the prince to whom she owed it that she had not lost the Netherlands and Catalonia, because he had not sent troops and ships to defend her possessions in Italy. The imperial ministers formed and executed resolutions gravely affecting the interests of the coalition, without consulting him who had been the author and the soul of the coalition. Louis had, after the failure of the assassination plot, made up his mind to the disagreeable necessity of recognizing William, and had authorized Cadier to make a declaration to that effect. But the defection of Savoy, the neutrality of Italy, the disunion among the Allies, and above all, the distresses of England, exaggerated as they were in all the letters which the Jacobites of Saint-Germain received from the Jacobites of London, produced a change. The tone of Callier became high and arrogant. He went back from his word and refused to give any pledge that his master would acknowledge the Prince of Orange as the King of Great Britain. The joy was great among the non-jurors. They had always, they said, been certain that the great monarch would not be so unmindful of his own glory and of the common interest of sovereigns as to abandon the cause of his unfortunate guests and to call an usurper his brother. They knew from the best authority that his most Christian majesty had lately at Fontainebleau given satisfactory assurances on the subject to King James. Indeed, there is reason to believe that the project of an invasion of our island was again seriously discussed at Versailles. Catanet's army was now at liberty. France, relieved from all the apprehension on the side of Savoy, might spare twenty thousand men for a descent on England, and if the misery and discontent here were such as was generally reported, the nation might be disposed to receive foreign deliverers with open arms. So gloomy was the prospect which lay before William when, in the autumn of 1696, he quitted his camp in the Netherlands for England. His servants here, meanwhile, were looking forward to his arrival with very strong and very various emotions. The whole political world had been thrown into confusion by a cause which did not at first appear commensurate to such an effect. During his absence, the search for the Jacobites who had been concerned in the plots of the preceding winter had not been intermitted, and of these Jacobites none was in greater peril than Sir John Fenwick. His birth, his connections, the high situations which he had filled, the indefatigable activity with which he had during several years labored to subvert the government, and the personal insolence with which he had treated the deceased queen, marked him out as a man fit to be made an example. He succeeded, however, in concealing himself from the offices of justice till the first heat of pursuit was over. In his hiding place he thought of an ingenious device which might, as he conceived, save him from the fate of his friends Charnock and Parkins. Two witnesses were necessary to convict him. It appeared from what passed on the trials of his accomplices that there were only two witnesses who could prove his guilt, Porter and Goodman. His life was safe if either of these men could be persuaded to abscond. Fenwick was not the only person who had strong reason to wish that Porter or Goodman, or both, 
might be induced to leave England. Aylesbury had been arrested and committed to the tower, and he well knew that if these men appeared against him, his head would be in serious danger. His friends and Fenwick's raised what was thought a sufficient sum, and two Irishmen, or, in the phrase of the newspaper of that day, bog-trotters, a barber named Clancy and a disbanded captain named Donla, undertook the work of corruption. The first attempt was made on Porter. Clancy contrived to fall in with him at a tavern, threw out significant hints, and, finding that those hints were favorably received, opened a regular negotiation. The terms offered were alluring, three hundred guineas down, three hundred more, as soon as the witness should be beyond sea, a handsome annuity for life, a free pardon from King James, and a secure retreat in France. Porter seemed inclined, and perhaps was really inclined, to consent. He said that he still was what he had been, that he was at heart attached to the good cause, but that he had been tried beyond his strength. Life was sweet. It was easy for men who had never been in danger to say that none but a villain would save himself by hanging his associates. But a few hours in Newgate, with the near prospect of a journey on a sledge to Tyburn, would teach such boasters to be more charitable. After repeatedly conferring with Clancy, Porter was introduced to Fenwick's wife, Lady Mary, a sister of the Earl of Carlisle. Everything was soon settled. Don Loch made the arrangements for the flight. A boat was in waiting. The letters which were to secure to the fugitive the protection of King James were prepared by Fenwick. The hour and place were fixed at which Porter was to receive the first installment of the promised reward. But his heart misgave him. He had, in truth, gone such lengths that it would have been madness in him to turn back. He had sent Charnock, King, Keys, Friend, Parkin, Rookwood, Cranburn to the gallows. It was impossible that such a Judas could ever be really forgiven. In France, among the friends and comrades of those whom he had destroyed, his life would not be worth one day's purchase. No pardon under the great seal would avert the stroke of the avenger of blood. Nay, who could say that the bribe now offered was not a bait intended to lure the victim to the place where a terrible doom awaited him? Porter resolved to be true to that government under which alone he could be safe. He carried to Whitehall information of the whole intrigue, and he received full instructions from the ministers. On the eve of the day fixed for his departure, he had a farewell meeting with Clancy at a tavern. Three hundred guineas were counted out on the table. Porter pocketed them and gave a signal. Instantly, several messengers from the office of the Secretary of State rushed into the room and produced a warrant. The unlucky barber was carried off to prison, tried for his offense, convicted, and pilloried. This mishap made Fenwick's situation more perilous than ever. At the next session for the City of London, a bill of indictment against him for high treason was laid before the grand jury. Porter and Goodman appeared as witnesses for the Crown, and the bill was found. Fenwick now thought it was high time to steal away to the Continent. Arrangements were made for his passage. He quitted his hiding place and repaired to Romney Marsh. There he hoped to find shelter till the vessel which was to convey him across the Channel should arrive. For though Hunt's establishment had been broken up, there were still in that dreary region smugglers who carried out more than one lawless trade. It chanced that two of these men had just been arrested on a charge of harboring traitors. The messenger who had taken them into custody was returning to London with them when, on the high road, he met Fenwick face to face. Unfortunately for Fenwick, no face in England was better known than his. "'It is Sir John,' said the officer to the prisoners. "'Stand by me, my good fellows, and I warrant you, you will have your pardons and a bag of guineas besides.' 
The offer was too tempting to be refused, but Fenwick was better mounted than his assailants. He dashed through them, pistol in hand, and was soon out of sight. They pursued him. The hue and cry was raised. The bells of all the parish churches of the marsh rang out the alarm. The whole country was up. Every path was guarded. Every thicket was beaten. Every hut was searched. And at length the fugitive was found. In bed. Just then a bark of very suspicious appearance came in sight. She soon approached the shore and showed English colors, but to the practice eyes of the Kentish fishermen she looked much like a French privateer. It was not difficult to guess her errand. After waiting a short time in vain for her passenger, she stood out to sea. Fenwick, unluckily for himself, was able so far to elude the vigilance of those who had charge of him as to scrawl with a lead pencil a short letter to his wife. Every line contained evidence of his guilt. All, he wrote, was over. He was a dead man, unless indeed his friends could, by dint of solicitation, obtain a pardon for him. Perhaps the united entreaties of all the Howards might succeed. He would go abroad, he would solemnly promise never again to set foot on English ground, and never to draw sword against the government. Or would it be possible to bribe a juryman or two to starve out the rest? That, he wrote, or nothing can save me. This billet was intercepted in its way to the post and sent up to Whitehall. Fenwick was soon carried to London and brought before the Lord's Justices. At first he held high language and bade defiance to his accusers. He was told that he had not always been so confident, and his letter to his wife was laid before him. He had not till then been aware that it had fallen into the hands for which it was not intended. His distress and confusion became great. He felt that if he were instantly set before a jury, a conviction was inevitable. One chance remained. If he could delay his trial for a short time, the judges would leave town for their circuits. A few weeks would be gained, and in the course of a few weeks something might be done. He addressed himself particularly to the Lord Steward, Devonshire, with whom he had formerly had some connection of a friendly kind. The unhappy man declared that he threw himself entirely on the royal mercy, and offered to disclose all that he knew touching the plots of the Jacobites. That he knew much, nobody could doubt. Devonshire advised his colleagues to postpone the trial till the pleasure of William could be known. This advice was taken. The king was informed of what had passed, and he soon sent an answer directing Devonshire to receive the prisoner's confession in writing, and descended over to the Netherlands with all speed. End of Section 2 Chapter 22 The History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay Reading by S.T. Macduff.